Okay, so I got the opener this week, and to celebrate, I'm going to do a double header for an opener. First, I'm going to do an update on the Jeb James... <laughs> I almost combined the names, Jeb's telescope. James Webb telescope, because we have sort of been following it, kind of. We didn't update on it. I can't remember why. We Because we mentioned it at some point briefly, but then we updated it that it left, but it hadn't actually left. So we updated and good And we had to record the audio later on after we recorded <laughs> that it safely <laughs> made it to where it needed to. So I thought that I'd start out with an update on the brief updates that we've done in good faith. This one is not in good faith. This one's all fact. It is fashionably late. We tried to jump the gun on the last update and this one's going to come in a little bit late. That's okay. On average, they're on time now. Yeah. In true journey to the fringe fashion, we keep some sort of organization to the podcast. So James Webb Telescope finally reached its final destination, which was 30 days after its launch, which was around Christmas time. Did not put the exact date in true journey to the fringe fashion. <laughs> Maybe that's just Chelsea fashion. The final resting place being the L2 Lagrange point. Is that, Am I saying it right? Lagrange point, which is four times further away than the moon. L2 is a point that will help keep its position stable relative to Earth and the Sun. Being in that spot protects it from the big swings in temperature and allows the James Webb Telescope. I don't get, they abbreviate it by saying JWST, but what is the S? Space Telescope, I believe. James Webb, James Webb Space Telescope? Yeah. Oh, okay. So James Webb Space Telescope, I presume, being in the spot protects it from big swings in temperature and allows the James Webb Space Telescope's giant sun shield to block heat coming from the sun. The telescope must maintain constant super cold temperatures, which is minus 370 degrees Fahrenheit, for the instruments to function properly. Yeah, it's crazy. It's near, like, absolute zero. I don't even know how they would know the temperature that it needs to be at or even test that here. Well, we can reach near absolute absolute zero in lab settings on earth is that absolute zero no we can't reach absolute zero like it's what? impossible i thought it was just zero degrees celsius oh okay when you're thinking of absolute zero you talk about kelvin and zero degrees kelvin is cold it's the coldest anything can possibly be okay wow that's cold and i thought i was cold all the time okay so it's arrived now and unfolded. Yes, it had to be unfolded. It was too large, so it had to be launched into space, uh, folded up into a rocket. I had no idea it was so gigantic. It's tennis court sized. You would think it would be little, but it's not. So it was launched up in the rocket and had to be unfolded remotely by commands from Earth, and the process took about two weeks to get it unfolded, which apparently was pretty intense. Now that it's unfolded and there, it now begins the process of aligning the mirrors, instrument activation, commissioning, adjusted the infrared telescope's mirror segments, and testing out its instruments, and then she's ready to rock in about five months. It's a he, Chelsea. It's a he? I thought they were all she's. Yeah, James Webb Space Telescope. But this one's James. Okay, he. James could be a boy. I mean a girl. <laughs> <laughs> I caught myself it is a boy. Okay, and it's going to be capturing the very first stars in the universe made possible by the infrared sensitivity the telescope is equipped with, as well as also studying the atmospheres of planets orbiting stars outside our solar system to see if they're habitable or inhabited. Can I just add at this point, it's yeah. theoretically the first stars in the universe yeah. because that's based on our science that we can only make observations on from our observable portion of the universe and also does not take into account that anything could have happened prior to the Big Bang. It doesn't take into account of that? No, there could have been stars before the Big Bang. How, don't Couldn't they see it with this telescope? No, you can never see before the Big Bang. Why? What if it never happened? Well, theoretically it did, and it's very hard to see past. Well, if there was nothing, I guess you couldn't see that. But maybe there were stars. Anyhow. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Apparently this technology has never been had by any telescope before. And you can they can technically see the beginnings of the solar system with this infrared camera the beginning of the solar system or beginning of the universe both yeah both okay either one interchangeable well i just don't see how you can see because basically what they're saying is we can see the beginning of the universe because we can see things that are 14 billion light years away so that light would be literally coming off of 
just after the Big Bang. See, I don't get that though. Like, wouldn't that light like pass us at some point? No, it's still working to pass us because it left that star as soon as it was created and it is 14 billion light years away from us. And a light year is how far light can travel in a year. We know how long away the first star is? Generally, we know when the Big Bang happened, so likely what stars would have been created and the first times they would have shown up. So we're looking for light that would be coming from things that were wow. created at that time. Okay, we're getting really smart. <laughs> kind of like we say when you look up at yeah. the sky and you can say like, that light was created yeah. when dinosaurs were on the Earth because it's 67 million light years away. Yeah, I get that. But like at one point, like it's closer, like it's no longer when the dinosaurs were there. And then there's that whole other side of it of there's only so much of the universe we'll ever be able to see because the universe is expanding in all directions faster than the speed of light. So there's portions of the universe that are past the point that light could travel to us from that time. This is all very hard to wrap my mind around. But yeah, it's very cool actually when we explain it simply <laughs> to my simple mind. So it's really cool that they're going to be able to capture this. There's a lot of scientists that are very excited about this like camera that's going to capture things that they've never been able to capture before. The infrared camera and the spectrograph as well break down light together in its full spectrum of colors like a rainbow to look for signs of water on planets, carbon dioxide and methane, which are all common on Earth and we think may be signs of life-friendly planets elsewhere, as I think we've talked about on other episodes. Yeah, that would have been the Fermi Paradox episode. The Fermi Paradox, yes. And we basically think that life will survive only in the circumstances that we survive on Earth. We only have one case study and it's us. Yeah. So basically we're going to look for the things that we know can at least work in creating life. I wonder if it works in all possibilities. Are a combination. It, it must. We don't know for sure, though. No, but, well, again, it was in the Fermi Paradox episode. There's the idea of the rare Earth, and it's just like there are so many factors that you need to get life. Yeah. Like, that it could have only popped up once. Highly unlikely. Anyhow, to finish this off, the like best part I thought about this is there's already an image they took as its calibrating stages and it also took a selfie of itself I'm gonna post oh yeah and how much they spent on that selfie it's pretty shitty actually yeah so I'm gonna post this to our social medias and the first image is really blurry it's like pretty cool but it's like super blurry you're like um you can tell it's blurry and it's like wow so many millions of dollars billions yeah many millions into the billions making yeah I guess you're technically right and it's like saying laundry done in seconds. Technically, no matter how long it takes, it's still in seconds. Yeah, it might be like thousands of seconds, but... Yeah, so they're blurry pictures because it's not quite set up yet. It is a nice blurry selfie of the JWST, whatever the S means. It's Space Telescope. It's the James Webb Space Why Telescope. Why do we have to, like, specify Space Telescope? We because don't there's it. a distinct difference between a terrestrial telescope and a space telescope. Okay. And the huge yes, difference I... is that they do not need to account for atmospheric changes to the viewing. Oh. Does that make sense? I guess so. Yeah. Because when I say James Webb Telescope, I don't say James Webb Space Telescope. Really? I feel that it feels more natural with the space in there. Okay. So I will amend all of it moving forward. Not now. Okay. So part two of my opener. It's not as epic of, as Mc97s, but... <laughs> Next is an article I stumble upon a little bit ago and just never had the chance to use until now. I love a good missing person story, especially when it comes to mysterious circumstances. And I mean, that is, I mean that in the best way possible. I just am fascinated by them. We do not wish for them to happen, but when they do, exactly. man, do we just... I do not wish for the, anyone to go missing or be it to be under mysterious circumstances, but... Do I like a good missing person story? So there are a large number of missing person cases which fall into this mysterious category. We've mentioned it a couple of times in passing. This is an opener, so I'm not going to be getting into what makes these disappearances mysterious and whatnot because you could easily be one, two, or three episodes. And for right now, I'll just refer you to David Pilatus as we've referenced him in the past. And with that being said, I did stumble upon a weird article. I love the fact that we have mentioned David Politis at least five times yeah. now and just like 
refuse to do an episode. No, we it's a, it's a lot to undertake to we do. We always allude both. to it in the future. We will but... do one in the future. It's just that one's going to be a huge undertaking. I think there's a few episodes that we want to do that are just going to be such a huge undertaking that is going to take us a while to research and to get it to an episode we'd be happy with. Yeah, that's that hard part. When you know enough about it, you're worried about putting anything out there that's not perfect. Yeah. This one, I kind of had that feeling on this one, but I think I did a good enough job. Okay. Anyhow, let's <laughs> good enough. And that's what we aim for. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Good enough. Okay, so this article's from 2019. So it is a few years ago now. It's dated. It's three years ago. But still worth a mention. It, it's pretty cool. Topical news, Chuck. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Only three years old. <laughs> yeah. So, well, you'll see when I say it. But And why not? The setup is literally what we see in most of these mysterious missing people cases and with David Pilatus. So this is Casey Hathaway, who is three years old and was playing with another with other children in his grandmother's yard when he completely vanished in Ernal, North Carolina. Gone. The search had setbacks due to bad weather once he went missing, including heavy rain and wind. The terrain was treacherous and the areas they needed to search were flooded and filled with sinkholes. The professionally trained searchers were having trouble navigating safely. Two days later, they found Casey 40 to 50 yards deep into the woods from his grandmother's yard where he was playing. He was soaking wet, cold, and tangled in thorn bushes calling for his mother. The searchers had to wade through nearly waist-deep water to get to him. And what happened to Casey, you ask? Well, Casey recounted to his family that he was taken care of by a bear for two days, and the authorities shared that there is no sign of abduction, and that's what Casey had stuck to in a story when he left. Would a bear abduction show the same signs that police would be looking for? I don't know that they would fully qualify... Probably, yes. What's the alert that they give when children are abducted? Amber? Amber alert. Okay, it would be a brown alert for a bear. Well, it might still be an amber alert, but you'd have to be on the lookout for a bear. Editor's note, the correct term is an amber alert. Yeah. I don't really like this bear in that when he was done with this child, he just chucked it into a rose bush. Yeah, to be found, like in an area that nobody could really get to easily. But yeah, that's what happened to Casey. I just, I stumbled upon a news article quite a while ago <laughs> saying that this kid went missing under mysterious circumstances and he said that he was taken care of by a bear. And I've just always wanted to talk about it. And now I've talked about it, so. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. That's the opener. Any closing opener awesome. thoughts? No, because I need to get into this episode. I got 10 pages of notes to go over. Oh my gosh, okay. So let's get going. Okay, quick. From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on a journey to the fringe. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe. For liability purposes, I am now going to inform you all that you are not legally required to listen to this episode. It's more of a moral obligation. We are your now liability absolved hosts. Taylor and Chelsea. And today we are going to be airing some of the laundry of those horse boys once again. We have touched on the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in the past when we talked about Gabriel Wartman's rampage and the weird things that have popped up in there. And today we're going to talk about one of the RCMP's lesser known but still dangerous practices that they use when they're doing investigations into crimes. And that is the Mr. Big investigation. Now this is one that generally the RCMP really tries to downplay. They don't put a lot of news out with regards to it. I think I have alluded to this before, but I finally put the time in and we're going to talk about what this investigation is, cases that have come from it, and really where we stand now with them in society. Okay, I'm excited. And we did allude to the Mr. Big episode in our Gabriel Wartman case episode, I think. So ask questions as we go, because this will likely be confusing and there may be legal terms used that you won't know what they are. So if you don't know, just ask. Okay, I'll keep us all on track, everybody. We're in this together. So without further ado, we're going to start this right off with what is a Mr. Big case? And that is a police investigation that usually places a suspect, typically someone socially isolated and financially disadvantaged, under extended 
targeted surveillance, typically for weeks. Why the RCMP have targeted these people is because they believe that they've committed a crime that they're investigating. Having learned about the suspect's personalities and habits, the RCMP develop an interactive scenario, pretending to encounter the suspect by happenstance, an undercover operative solicits a small favor from the suspect. Exploiting the acquaintanceship, the operative soon offers entertainment, gifts, companionship, meals, and eventually employment. The undercover operative pays the suspect appreciable monies for petty tasks such as counting cash or making deliveries associated with fictitious criminal activities. As these tasks grow in importance and frequency, the suspect is treated as an up-and-comer in a criminal organization. And this criminal organization is completely fabricated by the RCMP and is completely made up by undercover operatives working for the RCMP. As many as 50 operatives may be involved, crafting a steady escalation and association, influence and pressure leading up to the creation of an atmosphere in which it is deemed appropriate to encourage the target to confess. Okay. I feel like I'm following it properly, but I'm just not connecting the dots here. Okay. Eventually, the suspect is introduced to a character that fictitiously, or at least behind the scenes, is known as Mr. Big. He's the fictitious crime organization kingpin and is actually a skilled police interrogator. Employing enticement and threats, Mr. Big tells the suspect of receiving from the police incriminating information about the suspect whose impending arrest threatens the gang, and which is why Mr. Big must know the unsolved crime's details. Mr. Big may offer to clean up the situation by framing someone else, perhaps a terminally ill confederate willing to take the fall for the gang, or Mr. Big might claim that a mole within the police department can tamper with incriminating evidence. Sometimes the confession is demanded to show good faith, loyalty or trustworthiness, or serve as insurance to Mr. Big. And the final meeting is usually recorded. Once the police either obtain a confession or become convinced of the suspect's innocence, the lavish lifestyle and elaborate underworld evaporate, and where a confession has been obtained, the suspect is arrested. The Mr. Big technique is often a last resort in cold cases, or where the police's strong suspicion is paired with insufficient evidence, the Mr. Big technique has been used to secure convictions in hundreds of cases and has been highly effective in obtaining confessions from guilty suspects. Still, this technique also gives some innocent suspects compelling motivation to remain in the criminal organization to maintain the new lifestyle and new friends. Falsely confessing to Mr. Big then seems like an acceptable risk. That is messed up. Basically, they're just elaborately setting up a, like, drug cartel or something. Not necessarily drug cartel, it can be anything. They target the person that they take, first off, is going to be somebody who they believe is susceptible to this type of carousing. It seems like a lot of effort. It's a ton of effort, and we're going to get into that. And they tailor the criminal activity to the person that they're actually going after. Like, if somebody's, like, selling illegal hubcaps, like, Mr. Big is, like, the kingpin in this, like, upper... If somebody's a mechanic, then they might say, like, hey, we're gonna hire you to take these hubcaps off these cars. Probably a terrible example. Sorry for our mechanics out there in the world. And these are stolen cars. So they bring them and they make them take these hubcaps off these cars and they pay them the entire time to do it quite well. And then they ship them around Canada to do it in their little warehouses. That's so crazy. That's like such an elaborate scheme. Okay, I hope it's worth whatever they're setting these guys up for. Like, are they mob bosses? We're going to see who these people are as we go. Now, this is a made in Canada technique, too. It has been exported to some places, but this is pretty much everybody knows it as the Canadian Mr. Big investigation technique. Okay, so it didn't come from like Mongolia or like Afghanistan or something. No. Okay. The first case we're going to talk about is a, uh, a man by the name of Rose. It went through to the Supreme Court of Canada, known as R.V. Rose. I didn't write down the citation for it, but you can find R.V. Rose SCC. That's fine. I'm quick. sure we already know it's common knowledge. Yeah. In October of 1983, Andrea Scherpf and Bern Gorick were murdered in Chetwind. 
In 1991, Andy Rose was convicted of these killings, relying almost exclusively on testimony from a lady who claimed she saw him the night of the murder, quote, drunk and covered in blood, claiming to have killed two people, unquote. Sentenced to a minimum of 15 years in prison, the conviction was overturned on a technicality in 1992, but Rose remained in prison when a new trial had been immediately ordered. In 1994, Rose was again sentenced to a minimum of 15 years in prison, again almost exclusively on the testimony of the lady who claimed to see him in Chetwind, and his next appeal was denied in 1996. Rose was released on bail in 1997 when his second conviction was overturned on a technicality. Mounting evidence against a possible third conviction, including the witness against Rose being off on her timing by at least two weeks, and a man in California committing suicide after confessing to his wife with numerous consistent details to murdering two people near Chetwind in October of 1993, complicated the development for the Crown's attorney's refiling. In January of 1999, an undercover operative for the RCMP contacted Rose to gain his trust in hopes of obtaining a confession through a Mr. Big operation. In the next eight months, the investigators befriended Rose. Rose was seduced into illegal activities for which he got about $5,900 cash. Can I just pause for a second? What was their like Mr. Big scenario crime ring that they like hooped him in for? Like, is it like murdering more people or what did they think? would appeal to him i don't know in this case okay i do know in a quite a few of the next ones but this one was a mystery okay. for me because they didn't really talk about the investigation itself the mr big program they just talk about the outcome of it okay i was just curious because like what do you do if it's just like not just murder but like they're not operating anything illegally they just like murdered somebody what straight up it is they say i need you to deliver this box it's two grand for you to drive it across town. And they literally put fake drugs in it so that you feel like if you opened it, there's drugs in it and you know you're doing something illegal, but they're not really drugs. What the hell? Okay, first of all, if somebody said take this box, well, I don't know. I feel like for $2,000, I'd do it. And that's just so you know, they set it up so you become friends with the undercover officer prior to him confronting you with this. Yeah, I would do it. So again, he got paid during this time $5,900, which would be equivalent today to about $8,720. Yeah, I'd do it too. In 2022 dollars, that's about $50,000. Wow. Just kidding. Inflation's oh. a bitch, but I was not just going to say, bad. like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> After eight months, the gang told him that they could gather information about his upcoming case and change the evidence for him so he would not have to go back to prison or even to court. However, the support would only be granted if he became a recognized member of the gang, and it would be important to impress Mr. Big. At the meeting with Mr. Big in July of 1999, Rose repeatedly reaffirmed his innocence. Then Mr. Big made it clear to him that he wanted to hear a confession, and Rose, known for his alcohol abuse, should consider this with a beer. After a few beers, Rose confessed, and based on his confession, the Crown filed for a third trial. <laughs> What? This is insanity. Okay. The third trial collapsed in 2001 and proceedings against Rose were stayed with the ability for the Crown to refile charges to a court. Rose's innocence was proven due to lack of DNA evidence and he was acquitted. As it should have gone, I feel like. I'm no lawyer. Yeah. And know nothing about... Super sketchy, considering somebody committed suicide immediately after saying basically that he did kill these people. What the fuck? And another one from almost the exact same timeline. In 1995, the body of William Bedford, a cocaine dealer, was found duct taped to a tree in Hope, B.C. Oh, no. He had been shot in the head. Three years later, undercover police set up a fake criminal organization and gave Mr. Simmons, then a homeless and drug addict individual, oh, no. $1 million in cash as a demonstration of the enterprise's seriousness, his affidavit says. They brought him to the supposed crime boss, Mr. Big, to supply details with with the killing of Mr. Bedford as a condition of becoming a member. In 2000, a jury found Mr. Simmons guilty of first-degree murder, which carries a mandatory sentence of life in prison
prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. In 2002, the BC Court of Appeal upheld the conviction, and the Supreme Court refused a year later to hear his appeal. At no time did Mr. Simmons raise issues of being illegally manipulated by the police tactics because his lawyers say there was no legal basis at the time for doing so. What? If that were me, all of a sudden, like, I am being paid all this money and someone's like, if you want to continue to be paid this money and become a member of our club, but I need this confession from you, I'd probably be like, why? (laughs) I feel like I don't want to confess to anybody. We will get into that part because that's a big portion of this entire story. But I just want to focus on that last part where there was no legal basis for overturning this. And this is what's called the pre-heart days of Mr. Big. Okay. Despite the use of violence, derogatory language, and simulated crime by police agents in these Mr. Big operations, the confessions obtained still managed to slip through the cracks of an exclusionary rule in existence at the time. None of the following exclusionary rules applied. The common law confession rule, because the suspect did not know that he was talking to a person in authority. Section 7 of the charter, because the suspect was not in police detention. And hearsay, because it fell under the party admission exception, which is hearsay is okay if the person is not acting in their own interest, and in fact works against their best interests. Or the law of entrapment, because the suspect was not charged with an offense committed during his involvement with the fictitious organization. It was not a product of chance that Mr. Big Operations somehow managed to circumvent the letter of all these laws. Rather, it was by design. It would have to. When you're submitting Mr. Big evidence to the court, you're not submitting it as a confession. You're submitting it as this guy told me while we were sitting over a beer that he committed these murders. That's against his best interest to be saying that. So it's okay to admit that as hearsay. Despite the fact that everybody involved is a police officer. Yeah, and they're setting him up, essentially. Yeah. There's a lot of things wrong with it. That brings us into the next case of Hart. H-A-R-T. If you're looking for it, it's R-V Hart. It's very famous. Type it into Canly, C-A-N-L-I-I dot org. Hart, H-A-R-T-S-C-C. And it's going to be a really sad story, so just brace yourselves for this part, okay? Oh, no. Hart's twin daughters drowned on August 4th of 2002. Both of them? Both of them. Oh, no. Hart claimed that he had taken the girls, Krista and Karen, to Little Harbor where there was a small wharf. Krista fell off the wharf, and Hart, who could not swim, panicked and left to go get help, leaving the other child. In a later interview, Hart claimed that he had a small seizure at the time that Krista fell into the water... Karen ostensibly fell in the water during Hart's absence, and he drove home and returned with his wife. Krista was found alive but died at the hospital, and Karen was pronounced dead at the scene. The Mr. Big operation began in 2002. Preliminary surveillance revealed that Hart was socially isolated, had few friends, and went everywhere with his wife. He was also on social insurance with only a grade 4 education and had a history of seizures, which became more frequent after a car crash in 1998. The first contact took place when he was paid for assisting in finding an operative sister. He was then asked to make some truck deliveries for which he was well paid. A friendship with his operative developed. He began dealing in fake credit cards, forged passports, and counterfeit casino chips. Hart was made to believe that the gang was nationwide with branches in Vancouver, Montreal, and Halifax. As time went on, the seriousness of the illegal activities increased along with the lucrativeness of the payoffs. He and his wife were treated to luxurious trips around the country, extravagant shopping sprees, and expensive dinners. Hart aspired to join the gang as a full-time member. Well, yeah, he'd have to be dumb to not want to. In total, Hart participated in 63 what they call scenarios with the undercover officers and was paid more than $15,000 for the work that he did for the organization. As part of that work, Hart was also sent on several trips across Canada, Halifax, Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto, and Vancouver, and Hart often stayed in hotels and occasionally dined in expensive restaurants, and during these trips, all at the fictitious organization's expense. Over time, the undercover officers became Hart's best friends, and Hart came to view them as his brothers. According to one of the undercover officers, during this time frame, Hart made a bald statement in which he confessed to having drowned his daughters. The operation culminated with a meeting akin to a job interview 
between Hart and Mr. Big, the man purportedly at the helm of the criminal organization. During their meeting, Mr. Big interrogated Hart about the death of his daughter, seeking a confession from him. After initially denying responsibility, Hart confessed to drowning his daughters. Two days later, Hart went to the scene of the drowning with an undercover officer and explained how he had pushed his daughter into the water. He was arrested shortly after. At trial, Hart's confessions were admitted into evidence. The trial judge denied Hart's request for permission to testify with the public excluded from the courtroom. The majority of the Court of Appeal allowed Hart's appeal and ordered a new trial. The Court of Appeal unanimously held that the trial judge erred in refusing to allow Hart to testify outside of the presence of the public, and a majority of the court also concluded that Mr. Big Operations had breached Hart's right to silence under Section 7 of the Charter, which again is, if you're with police, you don't have to talk to them. Okay. The majority excluded two of Hart's confessions, the one to Mr. Big and the one to the undercover officer at the scene of the drowning. However, the majority concluded that Hart's bald confession was admissible and ordered a new trial. This is where the actual wording of the case comes down from the Supreme Court. Mr. Big confessions are invariably accompanied by evidence that shows the accused willingly participated in simulated crime and was eager to join a criminal organization. This evidence sullies the accused's character and in doing so carries with it the risk of prejudice. Experience in Canada and elsewhere teaches that wrongful convictions are often traceable to evidence that is either unreliable or prejudicial. When the two combine, they make for a potent mix and the risk of wrongful conviction increases accordingly. Wrongful convictions are a blight on our system. We must take reasonable steps to prevent them from ever occurring. Mr. Big Operations also run the risk of becoming abusive. Undercover officers provide their target with inducements, including cash rewards to encourage them to confess. They also cultivate an aura of violence by showing that those who betray the criminal organization are met with violence. There is a risk these operations may become coercive. Thought must be given to the kind of police tactics we as a society are prepared to condone in the pursuit of truth. Under existing law, Mr. Big confessions are routinely admitted under the party admissions exception to the hearsay rule. Attempts to extend existing legal protections to Mr. Big operations have failed. This court has held that Mr. Big Operations do not engage the right to silence because the accused is not detained by the police at the time he or she confesses. And the confession rule, which requires the Crown to prove an accused's statement to a person in authority is voluntary, is inoperative because the accused does not know that Mr. Big is a police officer when he confesses. In sum, the law as it stands provides insufficient protection to accused persons who confess during Mr. Big operations. A two-pronged response is needed to address the concerns with reliability, prejudice, and police misconduct raised by these operations. Confessions arising from Mr. Big operations would henceforth be considered presumptively inadmissible, subject to a two-pronged admissibility analysis. The first prong requires recognizing a new common law rule of evidence. This is actually a really big deal. You don't get new rules of evidence very often. Under this rule, where the state recruits an accused into a fictitious criminal organization and seek to elicit a confession from him, any confession made by the accused to the state during the operation should be treated as presumptively inadmissible. This presumption of inadmissibility is overcome when the Crown can establish on a balance of probabilities that the probative value of the confession outweighs its prejudicial effect. The probative value of a Mr. Big confession is a function of its reliability. In assessing the reliability of a Mr. Big confession, courts must first look to the circumstances in which the statement was made. These circumstances include, but are not strictly limited to, the length of the operation, the number of interactions between the police and the accused, the nature of the relationship between the undercover officers and the accused, the nature and extent of the inducement offered, the presence of any threats, the conduct of the interrogation itself, and the personality of the accused, including his or her age, sophistication, and mental health. The question for the trial judge is whether and to what extent the reliability of the confession has been called into doubt by the circumstances in which it was made. 
After considering the circumstances in which the confession was made, the court should look to the confession itself for markers of reliability. Trial judges should consider the level of detail contained in the confession, whether it leads to the discovery of additional evidence, whether it identifies any elements of the crime that have not been made public, or whether it accurately describes mundane details of the crime the accused would likely not know had he or she not committed it. Confirmatory evidence is not hard and fast requirements, but where it exists, it can provide a powerful guarantee of reliability. The greater the concern raised by the circumstances in which the confession was made, the more important it will be to find markers of reliability in the confession itself or the surrounding evidence. Weighing the prejudicial effects of a Mr. Big confession is more straightforward and a familiar exercise. Trial judges must be aware that admitting Mr. Big confessions creates a risk of moral and reasoning prejudice. With respect to moral prejudice, the jury learns the accused wanted to join a criminal organization and committed a host of simulated crimes that he believed were real. That's not necessarily true because they befriend him first. They do, but in the end, he committed crimes for this organization and that can taint the view of a jury. Yeah, completely get that. It's really simple. The public would believe that somebody who committed a crime is more likely to have also committed this crime. So it's like an unintentional side of, not unintentional, of course it's intentional in setting this up. It's very intended. But it's like something some juries might not even be aware of, that they're like, oh, well, they're already like willing to commit crime, so they must have done it. And not only that, they confessed to killing someone else while committing a crime. Yeah, so it makes it probably more believable because they they did it while committing crimes. Yeah, so, and just so you understand so too, bad. the test they're laying out now is actually a voir dire. So that means whether or not this evidence gets admitted doesn't go to the jury. It goes into a different room where the defense and the crown talk to the judge about whether or not this will actually be accepted. And if it is accepted, then it comes back into the court and is admitted or it's never heard to the jury. Okay. This new common law rule of evidence goes a long way towards addressing the concerns with reliability, prejudice, and police misconducts that are raised by Mr. Big Operations. It squarely tackles the problem with reliability and prejudice. In addition, it takes account of police misconduct by both placing the admissibility onus on the Crown and by factoring the conduct of the police into the assessment of a Mr. Big confession's probative value. However, the common law rule of evidence I have proposed does not provide a complete response to the problems raised by Mr. Big operations. On its own, it might suggest that abusive police conduct will be forgiven so long as a demonstrably reliable confession is ultimately secured. Can I just interject here? I had a question about Hurt. Yes. Why did they choose him to do this to? They really suspected that he killed his daughters. Okay. Because his story didn't stand up. Yeah, and he just seemed like he had a fourth education. He had seizures, so he was probably like... A grade four education, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, more yeah. apt to be, like, manipulated. Not that all of these people aren't being manipulated, but... I read a study. It was put in the Manitoba Law Review. And it basically said, look at all these cases, that two-thirds of these individuals displayed either mental health issues, addiction, or low IQs. But yeah, that basically, I think, outlines the test that is laid out in heart. Basically, it is inadmissible unless the Crown can prove it has really important information in it that needs to be heard by the court and that it will not taint the jury's view of this character by admitting these cases. The second seems harder to do, but the first one, if it's a confession, would they not automatically just accept that? seeing as it's important information not necessarily okay. no because even with confessions they're not steadfastly admitted into courts because you can be signing a confession under duress yes. being lied to being propositioned or just not knowing exactly what even is in it well there's tons of people who give false confessions yeah exactly and that's why if it was a confession there's actually an entire test on whether or not a confession is admissible oh that's good to know. And that's why prior to this, Mr. Biggs fell outside of that and they were just hearsay evidence. That's why it's a big deal. Right. Okay. That's a good point. So that is the test that Hart lays out. 
To this day, the Mr. Big program is still alive and well. What? Yeah, I found a case. This started in 2018. And this is a man by the name of Greg Fertuck. His trial is still ongoing. So I don't know how much of Mr. Big's information is involved in it. As you were telling the story, I was like, there's no way this is legally happening anymore. The RCMP suspected Greg Fertuck of murdering his then wife, ex-wife at this point. The broad strokes of the plan involved undercover officers posing as criminals and convincing Greg to disclose the truth of what happened to Shiri. They did this by playing out 136 structured interactions known as scenarios between the summer of 2018 and late spring of 2019. The majority were audio recorded and key sessions were videotaped. It was called Project Fiston. July 2018, two undercover police officers set up a stand in an off-stale liquor store in Saskatchewan that Furtuck frequented, and the officers pretended to be pollsters doing market research on customers' drinking habits. People who filled out a survey were entered into a draw. First prize was an all-expense-paid trip to Cancun, Mexico. Second prize was a trip to Canmore, Alberta, and third prize, concert tickets in Saskatoon. Greg entered with his girlfriend Doris and won second prize. For Tuck did not know that all the other couples who also won second prize and were going to Canmore were all undercover RCMP officers. What the the sting was tailored to take advantage of Craig's interests and background. For instance, officers knew that he had worked on CN rails, so criminal ventures involving transportation were focused on. Craig learned that his fellow contestants and their friends, who they introduced him to in Alberta, bought damaged vehicles in the States and hauled them north for repairs and resales at car dealerships. He also learned through hints and overheard conversations that there was a legal side of the business and an illegal side. Sometimes the vehicles would be sold on the side by unscrupulous dealers. The criminal side was considerably more lucrative. A legitimate trip might pay $80, while its illegal version would pay $200. While on the Canmore trip, Greg learned that one of the Alberta contestant winners had a daughter going to the U of S in Saskatoon. This gave the undercover cops a pretext to stay in touch with Greg and Doris on their return. The supposed daughter cultivated her own relationship with Doris, which the officer testified was important because it wasn't known whether she was an accessory to Shiri's alleged murder or could be leveraged against Greg later in the sting. It was during Scenario 19, as they call it, in October of 2018 in Saskatoon, that officers actively introduced the criminal side of the operation. Greg and an undercover cop from the Canmore trip met a third man at a local bar, with Greg being asked along to watch his back. The officer wanted him to conclude that it smells like crime, it doesn't look like a legitimate meat, he said. Afterwards, the undercover officer explained that he worked for a sophisticated criminal organization that was better than a bike gang because we don't roll with patches on our backs and didn't traffic in drugs because that draws too much attention from the police. It was that point that Greg indicated he wanted to work in the criminal side of the organization. And then some time passes and this is super messed up. On January 1st of 2019, six months into the stay, Greg slipped and cracked his head taken by ambulance to the hospital and then checked himself out the same day. Six days later, the undercover cops were contacted by Greg's girlfriend and told that he was on the floor of their house in medical distress and needed help. They got such a relationship out of this that he fell and was convulsing on the ground and an undercover police officer is the first person the girlfriend calls. Yike, not even an ambulance. They arrived to find him collapsed with swelling in his head. He'd also soiled himself but was adamantly refusing to go back to the hospital. EMTs were called and he was finally convinced to go to the hospital. And then in June of 2019, Greg made his disclosure to the fake crime boss that he killed Shiri, his ex-wife. Is this not like some sort of coercion or something? If someone were to come along and think that I like did something illegal and they're wanting to like build a friendship with me and then they start off slow like they're friends and then they say yeah like start doing this for me I'll give you like this much money and I'm like wow okay like and then they actually give you that money yeah that's a lot of money and they're like paying for like hotels and stuff and then they're like this is actually illegal and it's a part of a big gang and stuff but you'll make 
make like more money than you do working as a waitress. And I'd be like, why would I say no if I was, you know, they were supplying a life that I wanted to live and couldn't do through other means if I was like... They focus on mentally ill. Yeah. Low IQ. That was the next thing I was going to say. Social loners. They Then one of the guys was homeless. Like, obviously, I can't get a job. You give me a million dollars. I'm not... He has nothing else to lose. Like, that's why I say it's coercion. Like, who would turn that down? And there was one. I didn't put it in my notes just because I could never find the actual story. But it was a a lawyer YouTube that I found really interesting. The guy was out on parole and the Mr. Big Sting was taking him across provincial borders to commit fake crimes. So they actually talked to his parole officer to explain what was going on and they okayed the exception for parole for him to go across borders to commit crimes because it was they part okayed of the Mr. Big scheme. Like yeah. Mor- morally they okayed that. Yeah. The set like that to me is a complete setup. Yeah. Wow. Of course the guy likely did commit murder. That's the thing. I believe the guy's name is Edward Barrich. He has been convicted of murdering one of his roommates in 2007 and burying the body and then when he heard the police were looking for it, dug up the body and hid it somewhere else. And through his evidence, they found where the body was. Okay, I have another wow. I have another question. So people are assumed innocent until proven guilty, right? This is all building the evidence to get them to guilty. To get them to guilty. And they are trying to build the evidence to get there. Like, to me, this doesn't seem right. They're going on a hunch. Well, not necessarily a hunch. It could be they have a lot of good evidence. It's just that it's not enough to convict. Okay, so they really need something. And I guess what I'm trying to say is if the police were to take somebody in and just straight up interrogate them, there's like all these rules that they have to follow about leading and stuff like that. Yeah. This seems to kind of get around it. Yeah, because that is an interaction between a police officer and a citizen. So a citizen says, I want my lawyer, then they have to at least give him the opportunity to get a lawyer. Okay, this seems so wrong. Yeah. Isn't that this wouldn't be with the citizen then if they're setting him up, they're professionally doing this. They're using our taxpayer money to take them on vacations. (laughs) We're going to get into that part too. Okay. Those are just the examples I wanted to go over. Now we're going to get into a bit of a legal review. So this comes from the Manitoba Law Review, Volume 43, Issue 3. In total, there have been about 410 Mr. Big cases that have gone before the courts. 410? By the time the Hart case took place, 350 of them had gone before the court. And after Hart, about 60 of them have gone through the courts. So this is just what we're going to focus on now, just to kind of give you an idea. In total, 59 court cases used the test laid out in Hart from 2015 to 2021. The confession was admitted by the trial judge in 51 cases. Out of how many? Of 59. Oh my god. In three cases, the evidence was excluded based on the new common law confession rule, lack of reliability, as made by Hart. And it was excluded in four cases due to the abuse of process rule. In three cases, it was unclear whether the confession was or would have been excluded because the accused pled guilty after or during the admissibility of Wardier. In all but two cases where the confession was admitted, the accused was found guilty. There were three cases where the confession was excluded, and the following outcomes resulted in the case being dismissed. The Crown withdrew its case, and the accused was acquitted due to a lack of Crown evidence. In two of the cases, where the confession was thrown out, the accused was still found guilty at trial, but a stay was entered on appeal, and the other two cases, the outcome of the case is unknown as the trial decision was not reported. Between... 1990 and 2008, Mr. Big was allegedly used a total of 350 times, with the majority of cases prosecuted resulting in a conviction. If the number is accurate, it means that prior to Hart, there were 14 cases on average per year, including those that made it and did not make it to trial. Since Hart, there have been 11 cases per year that have made it to trial. Note, that this number does not account for some of the unreported cases where the accused pled guilty, unreported cases that did not result in trial for any other reason, or cases which were ongoing at the time of our review. 
Therefore, Hart does not appear to have had any impact on either the number of cases brought to the trial or the number of cases where the evidence was excluded based on either of the framework's prongs. The fact that most operations, all but eight, were completed or started pre-heart indicates that the heart factors would not have been considered when designing the operations. It is interesting to note that despite the fact that the confessions considered by judges since 2014 originated from operations designed pre-heart, these confessions were still mostly admitted when judges applied the heart framework. Isn't that messed up? Yeah. Like they put this thing in place to say, look, these are bad. We need to at least meet the standard. And pretty much all of them were meeting it, despite the fact that all these investigations started prior to the test being out. So the cops wouldn't have taken it into account. So most of them should have been thrown out. Yeah, this is all mind blowing to me, really. Yeah. <laughs> that this is something that's happening legally. Let's talk about some critiques. Let's just talk about a Mr. Big investigation. How much do you think one Mr. Big investigation costs start to finish? Not taking into account the cost of salaries for the undercover police officers. Oh, gosh. I'm going to go into, like, probably just in what you've said, I'm going to go with, like, more than thousands of dollars, like $100,000. Actually, not bad. It's estimated that the average Mr. Big Tactic case is over $150,000 per investigation. Wow. Figure does not include the number of police resources used to carry out the tactic either. That, like, do you know with that what it would be estimated? It's probably so high. I do not know. Like, we're talking about with Hart, wasn't it? That that case went on 163 encounters. Each one of those encounters had at least one undercover police officer in there. Yeah, they're not going to be making tiny salaries either they're paid rather well no those are specialized police officers yeah and the success rate of mr big cases as they're stated are anywhere from 75 percent to 95 percent and they determine success uh, based on convictions or the exclusion of a suspect this seems so like crooked to me yeah and the part that is really frustrating too is we'll never know how many Mr. Big investigations were undertaken because we will only ever hear about them when it actually results in a case that goes to trial and they actually try to submit the evidence through a voir dire. So this is just like a common thing that is used in Canada. Again, we know how many cases have gone to court. We do not know how many resulted in the person was ruled out as a suspect. They got some evidence, but not enough to actually bring it to trial. Or they started one and just stopped it because they didn't have enough time or cops or whatever it may be. And this is key to the Mr. Big investigations too, is they need to keep them private because if the common citizens knew what a Mr. Big investigation was or that they were ongoing, it would absolutely destroy any ability for the Mr. Big investigation to do what it's proposed to do. How is it not commonly like it? it Did you know about it outside of me? No. And I guess the media is not covering it. And well, not only that, like it's redacted or confidential uh, information okay. that is not well known. And that's why we only know about the cases that have gone to court. Okay. Which is, I'm assuming, how you found out about it? Yeah, my first introduction to it was in Crim Law 101 okay. with Rebecca Johnson at UVic, who made me read Heart. This is crazy. Like, this, to me, has, like, some serious moral implications. And I'm surprised that it's even admissible at all. Many countries agree with you. Mr. Big Style investigations are prohibited in the U.S., U.K., and Germany. However, they have some admissibility in New Zealand and Australia. There are some legal articles out about the Canadian Mr. Big style of investigation and its impact on the Australian court system. But I unfortunately I ran out of time and was unable to kind That's of okay. explore that venue. Wow. Although there is something else that the UK is doing that I find just as reprehensible and I'll touch on that in a minute. Okay. But for the most part, I'm just going to keep going on with these critiques. Okay. Another thing, Mr. Big Investigations leave victims and their families without an answer as to what's going on with their investigation because they are confidential investigations. The families deserve a thorough and forthright investigation by police. It is not in the interest of victims to have evidence gathered through a Mr. Big Investigation that will likely be viewed as suspect at best or excluded from trial at worst to be what's relied on. Furthermore, it's in the community's best interest 
that police investigations are conducted in a matter that instills confidence in the criminal justice system. In the interest of serving the public and obtaining justice, police forces should consider the inherent flaws of the Mr. Big technique and critically reflect on its use. While the criminal justice system has its failings, public confidence in the legitimacy of the system is essential for its operation. By using the Mr. Big technique, police investigators risk public and community confidence in their methods and criminal justice system, and its outcome have little chance of being seen as fair or just. Yeah, it's not. That's a correct statement. That's a correct critique. So that is all the information i have on mr big obviously if you don't like this which god i don't know how you could talk to your member of parliament or your rcmp attachment and let them know that this is a terrible policy to be following um if you are from another country look into whether a mr big operation is legal or not in your country because these are terrible they are wasting hundreds of thousands of dollars per investigation to in to coerce somebody into admitting guilt how would they know if it's happening in their country mr Brick? how would i know you if would... it's operating in canada do i just mr big operation oh. canada yeah uh, basically what you would do is google your country uh or your country's police force and add in our um mr big canada and okay. it will likely give you some sort of information on whether or not it is being used. It does come right up, yes. And I do apologize for doing a very Western-oriented view of who's using it. But that's from what I could find. I didn't, unfortunately, have time to go through 200 different entries to see if it's legal in certain countries. It, apology accepted. Oh, good. I do also have to edit the episodes. <laughs> But to go on one thing I just wanted to explore as like a side project that I sound super fucked up because the UK says Mr. Big is too far. I heard about this about his beginning of the year. A climate activist just was awarded a £229,000 compensation by the UK courts for such a weird undercover sting that the UK, oh, what's it? I forget the name of their police force. Um, Scotland Yard? Maybe. Well, anyways, the Metropolitan Police did. The undercover officer was in a two-year intimate relationship with an eco-activist. Okay. The entire time undermining the process of their organization, getting involved and spying on everybody involved in the organization. And then when it was discovered who he was, he ran away. Oh, no. Yeah. That's so sad. Yeah, he was in a committed romantic relationship with somebody in the group for two years and then fled. Like, super messed up story. That's like the same thing as Mr. Big. It is, yeah. It's like the same exact thing. And I guess that's why she got money for it, but still, they did it. And it costs about as much as a Mr. Big yeah. investigation. <laughs> it's a little worse because she got intimate with this guy who's an undercover cop. To me, it's the same thing. Friend, well, yeah, relationship. Still the same moral lines are being crossed. Yeah. Anyhow, that's that's all I got today. Chelsea, any questions? Yeah, well, it's not really a question. Just... Is that just like existentially demoralizing? It is. It's totally demoralizing. And I thought what you were getting with was hard is that they no longer do it. Now it's just like whether or not it's admissible in court. But No, they put a test in place and then they yeah. didn't bother to actually make it a worthwhile it test, just apparently. like it brings in some serious moral questions because they're police they know about how to interrogate people in the proper ways that it should be done and they're purposely going around those so that they can use it under a different exception to use a confession when there's laws in place so that you can get a proper confession or i'm just really dumbing it down there you know what i mean and they're purposefully circumventing that yeah in like it's just so completely morally questionable what they're doing not even morally questionable it's just wrong yeah they literally sat down in a room it seems like and said okay all these onuses on us seem really hard but what if we weren't cops at least in their mind yeah but it shouldn't and matter then they, because they found the laziest way to do it at the end of the day that's the way they're trained so they should be held to those same moral standards 
Exactly. Yeah. That they are, that they've chosen as a career, not I'm going to be doing my career, but they don't know that. I'm just the guy that you call when your spouse is having a seizure on the kitchen floor. Yeah. That's it. Like, yeah. And then it's all done because we got your confession that we coerced out of you pretty much. It's the same thing. Like you lead people in a confession and there's all these like people giving false confessions, which is why there's all that stuff in place. And to me, that's the same thing. They're leading them to. Can you imagine that though? You have no money at all. Some guy comes along and starts paying you. It ends up being 15 grand. And he says, by the way, we need to know about you killing this person. And if you don't tell us about it, like this money's just cut off. Yeah, absolutely. And like, don't worry. If you say you did it, we have people within the police that we can pay to get rid of the evidence. So don't worry about of it. Just tell they us you do, did it. But they won't. Yeah. <laughs> because they are the police. That's just absolutely crazy. And there's no morals involved. And yeah, that just puts more questions even after that Gabriel Wortman one. That was a good episode. The RCMP's hands are not clean. That is why the uniform is red, to cover the bloodstains that are riddled about. Yeah, no kidding. As they are. That was a really good episode, though. I'm glad you liked it. Anyhow, we have been Taylor and Chelsea reminding you that any person giving you friendly help is likely an undercover police officer. Be sure to yell pig in their face and run away. (laughs) Except if they're actually offering you free money. In which case... They take the money until they want you to commit crime. Yeah, but don't confess. Take the money and don't confess. And sorry, once again, I do need to end this episode. We are not legal advice. <laughs> if, if this is something is presented before you, please talk to a lawyer again. We got a lawyer if you need it. Yeah, don't write that down. Not Anyhow, thanks for listening. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. If you have liked what you have listened to, please like, share, subscribe, or follow, depending on what venue you are listening to us through. Also, please, if possible, leave a five-star review, as that really helps us in the algorithms. Should you wish to interact with us, please check us out on your social media of choice. I bet you we are there. And if you really want to communicate with us and give us ideas for new episodes or tell us that we're wrong and terrible, either way, please send us an email at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. For now, I'll see you in the next episode. Uh